Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a Phase 1 archaeological survey attempts to identify the site of Fort Lane, built during the Second Seminole War. Well, this could be an actual post from Fort Lane. Fifty-two years after the Cuban Revolution, almost a million Cubans live in South Florida. I remember January 1st, 1959 very vividly. A retired swimming coach remembers the filming of Creature from the Black Lagoon in the 1950s. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Several groups of students from Valencia Community College, Brevard Community College, the University of Central Florida, and Rollins College are gathered on the shore of Lake Harney in Seminole County. The groups are positioned either 10 meters or 20 meters apart. Each group of students is shoveling dirt onto a screen with movable legs, sifting through the dirt, and hoping to find artifacts that will prove that this area was the site of Fort Lane built during the Second Seminole Indian War. Greg Harding is Outreach Coordinator for the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region and is leading this Phase 1 archaeological survey. We are uh, in Geneva, Florida, and this is uh, a site, well, it's actually uh, the property of the Fort Lane Park. And it's really the proposed property of where uh, the Second Seminole War Fort, Fort Lane, um, was. Now, on a lot of historical... Uh, a lot of historical maps as well as a lot of uh, historical diaries and docu uh, documents, uh, the actual fort is in a different location. Um, and so this was one of the proposed spots of that fort. So we've been shovel testing um, this area for the past few days. And if you look right over here, we did a pilot survey um, from the very south corner of the property all the way to the north property, which runs into the lake. And so we're finding a lot of uh, prehistoric remains. Um, there is a uh, Native American shell mound. Um, that dates to about the Middle Archaic period um, on the north side of the property. But also, um, we're finding some iron-cut nails, which dates to about the time the fort would have been established or built. Um, also, we're finding some posts way out in the lake, also um, in the mud, that are um, possible posts from that war fort. Um, and so we are doing some mapping of that. And when we come back in the fall for a uh, Phase 2, or more, a more um, intense investigation. We're going to do some more mapping of those, um, of those uh, logs as well as this uh, survey area. Fort Lane was established on December 18, 1837 as the first in a chain of supply depots for the U.S. Army. The forts were positioned about a day's walk apart, providing safety for the soldiers and their supplies at night. Many Florida towns grew up around these forts. For example, Orlando was built around the site of Fort Gatlin, and Sanford is on the site of Fort Mellon. Fort Pierce and Fort Lauderdale retain the names of their Seminole War Forts today. Fort Lane was named after Captain John F. Lane, a professor of math and philosophy at West Point, who committed suicide in 1836 at the age of 26 while serving under General Jessup, a leader of the Florida Wars. 
Greg Harding looks around the beautiful Fort Lane Park, where Spanish moss hangs from very old trees, right by Lake Harney. As an archaeologist, you couldn't ask for a better spot to dig. I mean, it's a nice breeze. You know, there's not too many mosquitoes right now. It's on the side of a, a beautiful lake. There's a pair of eagles that were flying around here yesterday. Um, so we were blessed with their presence. So it was great. There's a pair, you know, some uh, ospreys over here. Um, just beautiful, beautiful property. Um, it's a little cloudy right now, so it's not too hot. Um, it's very nice. I'm a little, little jealous of Bob waiting out in the, in the lake looking at those... Uh, at those uh, uh, logs. Harding is referring to Florida Historical Society volunteer Bob Gross, who is wading out into Lake Harney to document large wooden posts that might have been part of Fort Lane. Definitive confirmation of this location as the site of Fort Lane will have to wait for analysis of the wood and other objects being discovered, but Harding is hopeful based on stories passed down for generations among local residents. Exactly. There's a lot of rumor, a lot of local rumor that there, on this um, property there is a pavilion, um, and it's actually on the highest part of this property. And it's rumored that the pavilion was built basically on top of the exact fort site. And so what we've done is we've shovel tested a few places around the pavilion, and that's where we're finding those iron cut nails, which would have been for the construction of the fort. And so um, the the more investigating we do around this pavilion, uh, the more we're starting to uh, confirm uh, the rumor um, and the um, suspicion that the fort was actually here where we're standing. The Florida Public Archaeology Network is working in conjunction with the Central Florida Anthropological Society, a chapter of the Florida Anthropological Society, on this Phase 1 archaeological survey. The survey is serving as a field school for college students. Leading the efforts of the students and volunteers is Jason Wenzel, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Florida, who is a professor of anthropology and sociology at Valencia Community College and Brevard Community College. The volunteers and students are engaging in phase one archaeological testing, which involves conducting shovel tests that are spaced 10 meters apart. And this is basically a preliminary survey or what they call a reconnaissance survey to get a general idea of uh, the distribution of artifacts and features on the site to locate features on the site and just to be able to do some uh, sampling and to get an idea of what's going on here in terms of the uh, prehistoric and historic occupation of the area. The students and volunteers are discovering a variety of Aboriginal Native American artifacts including pottery, stone tools and animal bone as well as material from the early 20th century. So far, just a few items have been uncovered that may support the belief that Fort Lane was constructed here. Wenzel says that this field work is a great experience for students. I think one of the greatest sources of satisfaction I have from teaching is to be able to engage in field archaeology with my students because this provides them a hands-on way to learn about essentially uh, what they're reading about in their studies, what they're being tested on, but it takes it um, outside of the classroom into a pragmatic uh, environment where they can actually put the skills and knowledge of what they're being exposed to and what they're reading in their lessons to use. And they're actually doing archaeology and to me um, that helps uh, reinforce the lesson plans and the curriculum of what they're being exposed to. And it's, to me it's a really good um, example of experiential learning or hands-on applied learning. As one volunteer shovels dirt onto a screen with movable legs, another shakes the screen, allowing the dirt to sift through. The team examines any objects of potential interest left on the screen. Kevin Gadesco, Central Florida Anthropological Society. James Crandall, UF grad student. Uh, Matthew Filio, UCF student, undergraduate, volunteer. 
Uh, ben DiBiase, Florida Historical Society. Okay, and uh, if, uh, what, what are you doing here uh, with, with this screen? Uh, currently, what we're doing is uh, sifting the dirt that we pulled out of a shovel test. And so what happens is we, we dig a hole 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters, technically a meter down, although it's probably not going to because we're so close to the lake. And then we sift uh, through everything and pull out whatever artifacts uh, appear. And we make a, uh, a note of the strata that it came from. And uh, we compile all this information uh, once we're done with this grid work and uh, find out where we're going to be doing more work. Now, Ben, you are usually in the archive at the Florida Historical Society Library of Florida History, but uh, you're out here getting your hands dirty today, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just getting a uh, kind of a crash course here in, um, like they said, preliminary you know, archaeological work. And it's, it's great. You know, it's great to take... What we do at the archive, you know, locating documents and, and identifying, um, you know, sites on maps and then coming out to the actual field, uh, getting into the holes and uh, seeing what we can find. It's great. Now, as you uh, place the dirt that you're digging on this, this screen and, and sift through it, are you coming across uh, items of interest today? We found some glass over there. That was it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long process, but I, I guess it's worth it when you do come across something. Oh, certainly. I mean, this is the first step in any sort of archaeological process is a basic, having a basic understanding of the archaeological site, understanding where artifacts are coming from. Um, it's basically a pre preliminary research to what could possibly be a bigger project. Okay. Wouldn't it be great if there was some coin from the Second Seminole Indian War or something in here? Yeah. It would help us date things for sure. Yeah. But you know, just as important as finding things, it's also important to see where things are not. So in, in its own way, it's it's just as important to dig a hole with nothing in it as it is to find, uh, like the other one, where we found what looks to have been like the remnants of a big feast, you know, a lot of food consumption. Greg Harding digs mud from around a large wooden post buried at the water's edge of Lake Harney. He explains that this is probably the most exciting discovery so far that may prove that this was the site of Fort Lane. We're out here at, um, really on uh, right at the water and one of the uh, times we came out here just for primary investigation uh, there were these logs sticking out of the water and so upon further investigation when we were out here um, really just looking around there was an actual a full uh, pine log sticking out of the mud. Um, and it was really just the top half, and so we started thinking about, well, this could be an actual post from Fort Lane, and when we started digging around, it actually um, became quite clear that it could have been used for that. Um, now, we need to uh, do a, a further in uh, investigation on this, but it's uh, quite long. It's actually 12.2 meters long, which is huge. Um, I think for Christmas, the, um, but the posts are about 18 feet long, um, but there are parts of uh, Fort Christmas, which Fort Christmas would have been built um, about the same time. Um, that are two stories, and that could have been quite long like this. Um, but what we did was we uh, dug around part of the log, and now when it's under mud, it's actually preserved um, because, especially when it's like this for a long time, it creates an anaerobic environment, so um, the amount of oxygen is very little, which preserves this wood. Um, so if this is Second Seminole War, uh, 
or a piece of the fort. It could be quite old, but under this mud it could be preserved. So what we did is we measured it, took the measurements of it, and then we covered it back up. Um, but at the end of it, it is, it looks like it was uh, either sawed or hacked uh, to a point. Um, but it is a possibility that it could just have been part of um, uh, a supply for the depot. Fort Lane was used as a depot um, to supply Fort Christmas with things like construction materials as well as food um, and supplies for the soldiers. Um, so it could just be something that was just being shipped off to another fort. Um, so we really don't know. It's one of the things when we come back out here in the fall that um, we're going to probably spend a little time working on this. But there is another log um, about the same length and the same um, width directly under it, even further in the mud. And then if you look out in the lake, there are actually five or six um, more logs uh, out here about the same size and the same circumference. So, uh, excuse me, circumference. Um, and so we're going to plot those points with a GPS um, for our maps. Greg Harding is Outreach Coordinator of the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region, working in conjunction with the Central Florida Anthropological Society on the Phase 1 Archaeological Survey of what might be the site of Fort Lane, built in 1837. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Created in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. The Florida Historical Society publishes great books on Florida history and culture, maintains the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, hosts the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region, manages the historic Rossiter House Museum, and produces this program. Although we're the only statewide historical society, we do not receive funding from the state. We depend on membership support. If you'd like to support the great work of the Florida Historical Society, please become a member by going to myfloridahistory.org and clicking on the Join Now button. You'll get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. During the 21-year British occupation of Florida, roughly the same period as that of the American Revolution, a large number of Menorcans, Greeks, and Italians were imported to Florida as indentured servants. Their purpose was to be the workforce for an indigo plantation at New Smyrna. For nine years, the Menorcans, as the workers and their families collectively came to be called, worked under brutal, often deadly conditions. In 1777, the Menorcans sent a select delegation on foot to St. Augustine to seek redress of their grievances from English Governor Patrick Tonin. It was the first successful civil rights march in this country. Tonin invited the Menarchans to come live as free people in St. Augustine, which they did. Many of their descendants live in the city today. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. 
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. He was a strange one, a relic from an age long forgotten. Some music he liked, some upset him terribly. He loved parties and party music. He was so dull. After all, what ideas can the creature from the Black Lagoon have? He only wants to feast on the grapes of wrath. Cheney Gould spoke recently with a retired swimming coach who participated in the filming of the Creature from the Black Lagoon movies in the 1950s. Dick Wells organized Indian River Junior College's nationally acclaimed swim programs in the 1970s. When he was a student at Florida State University, he had an underwater role in the 1954 horror flick, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. What was it? Science didn't know. But the tale about a beast in the Amazon was filmed at Wakulla Springs in North Florida. Wells first tried out to be the creature itself. I tried the suit on, and it just was too small for me. What did you do in the movie? I chased the creature. They would spot the creature from the boat and point, then I would dive, and I'd carry a gun with me. And the gun had what they called rotenone. It was really condensed milk, and when you pull the trigger, a big cloud of white milk came out. Was that supposed to be underwater gunpowder or something? Something like that, yes. They put those movies together in little pieces. When you say those movies, there was the original Creature from the Black Lagoon, then there were two sequels. Creature Walks Among Us and I think Return of the Creature. They make the movies like in comic strips. They take little strips of tape and then put it all together. It was very critical that you did everything you're supposed to do because they hated to waste film. You swam underwater without supplemental oxygen. How long could you hold your breath? I don't know exactly how long. Most people can't hold their breath longer than five minutes or so. I wasn't down that long. We had the supplemental air handy so we could go over and get some whenever we needed it. And you swam the uh, crawl underwater, right? You didn't just do a little dog paddle. Right. They wanted someone to be swimming like they were swimming on the surface underwater. Can you be seen in these movies? They don't see my face. I was bald. They wanted me to have hair. So they penciled it in with a makeup pencil. They took carbon paper and rubbed it over my head to take the shine off. They paid us pretty well, not great, but would do almost anything to satisfy their needs. For a struggling college student especially, I'm sure it was good money. I think it was $250. Do you have the movies? Do you watch them from time to time? We have one of the movies. They made three movies, and I think they pieced them together. So it's kind of hard to distinguish who's who underwater. Did the creature finally get what was coming to him? He did. The creature was subdued. In one movie, he came alive again on shore. It was a low-budget movie, to say the least. The safety people were girls from Wikiwachi Springs who were underwater swimmers. 
nothing happened to you, but something happened to one of your buddies underwater? He was not a very accomplished swimmer. The hardest part about it was with the weight belt on, coming up to the surface and receiving instructions. Treading water and keeping your head up with the weight belt on is not easy. So he looked at me and through the mask said, I'm drowning. So I held him up. Another thing that happened was I went down without clearing my ears. My mask filled with blood. That wasn't very nice to see. Of course, I didn't show it. They had to reshoot that scene? Well, yes. It was just one of those things that can happen to you if you're a little careless, I guess. You survived it all and made a little bit of extra money. The biggest thing about it was being there and being in the movie. Uh, Of course, the money was important at that time, too. Dick Wells was director of athletics at Indian River Junior College, which is now Indian River State College, from 1973 until 1979. He designed and guided construction of the aquatic facility on the main campus. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. More than 52 years after the Cuban Revolution, nearly a million Cubans live in South Florida, including those who fled the Castro regime, their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Are they unique among immigrant groups? Bill Dudley talks to two Cuban scholars who says it's hard to generalize about the Cuban-American experience. I remember January 1st, 1959 very vividly. I woke up and I heard the radio playing in my parents' bedroom. And I went there, and my father said, the man left, referring, of course, to Batista. And uh, although I was only nine years old at the time, I understood perfectly what that meant. The memories of Lisandro Perez. Today, he's professor of sociology at Florida International University, where for 12 years he directed the Cuban Research Institute. Perez, who came to the U.S. with his family in 1960, describes himself as part of the 1.5 generation. A lot of that early migration involved fairly young families with young children. So there are many of us who came at that time who were 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. But we're not second generation in the sense that we were born here. Uh, When we arrived here, we had a memory from Cuba. We remember Cuba. For well over a century, Cubans in the United States have defined themselves by their relationship with their homeland. From the cigar makers who came to Key West and Tampa in the 1880s to the many waves of people coming here since 1959. A very important culture among Cubans has been the culture of exile. And those who came relatively early in the process, in the early 60s, those who left at the time in which there was this conflict internally in Cuba, left with a sense that they had lost the homeland and they have always been seeking to recover it. Cubans who have left more recently, say since 1980 or so, have been Cubans who uh, largely do not wish to recover the homeland. They wish to really make their lives in the U.S. and more or less forget about Cuba. But they do have relatives there. 
Many of them do wish to return, if only temporarily, to help those relatives, to send them money, to be able to visit them. I think for many of those born in this country and for many of those who came more recently, the idea of the anti-Castro struggle that marked so much the earlier generation of Cuban exiles is not at the top of their agenda. Recovery of the homeland, the struggle against Castro, was something that defined especially those early exiles and many of their children as well. But it is something that is declining somewhat in the Cuban-American community and taking its place are some concerns about the situation here in the country you know, educational opportunities, the economy, things like that, that also are of importance to Cuban Americans. He adds that where one lives makes a difference. Those growing up in Miami are steeped not only in exile politics, but also Cuban culture. But 40% of the Cubans in this country live outside the Miami area. I've raised my children primarily in Miami, two boys, and particularly my older one, speaks Spanish very well, for example, even though he was born in the United States. My brother, who's younger than I am, and who remembers less of Cuba, has lived most of his life in Texas. And his children largely do not have that identity, let's say, as Cubans. Another member of the 1.5 generation, Myra Mendible, is professor of cultural and media studies at Florida Gulf Coast University. If you can connect to something that is important to your parents and your grandparents and you have a close relationship and that has been really emphasized uh, in your life, then you hang on to it. It it becomes a part of your identity, something you don't want to give up. But I also see so many cases of the younger generation, certainly by the third generation, who really don't understand what what's the big deal you know why why do they keep talking about a place that they haven't been to in 50 years and so it really does vary and i think it it depends mostly on how much that is emphasized in the home a lot of that older generation has really moved on and they don't live in the past as much as they used to in florida today cuban people are integrated into the highest levels of society and government many economically prosperous and well-educated How does the Cuban experience fit into the panorama of immigration to the United States over the last century? This is not the migration that the U.S. was accustomed to, what we call the immigration of the white ethnics of the turn of the 20th century, the Italians and the Hungarians and the Poles and so forth, who largely came seeking opportunities and came from largely the lower levels of their host society. With many of the other immigrant groups, you had much more of a diaspora of people, and and in this case, you had a real concentration. The fact that they were able to recreate for themselves in one specific geographic region, Miami, such a strong community, I think that made a difference in the ability to be successful more quickly, to retain some of their culture, to retain some of the language, to retain some of that connection that I think was lost uh, much earlier with other groups. You had the small ghettos of pockets of ethnic enclaves, but you didn't have an entire city that so markedly retained this identity. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please come back again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.